Good morning. I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is the on- only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from them, them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Thank you, Heather. Good morning, everybody. So I want to start this morning by telling you a story that I think embodies what we're going to talk about today, which is sin. Last week, we talked about creation What did it mean for God to make the world? He made it good. He made us good. He made us with certain qualities that we are designed to embody. And you don't have to get more than one page into the Bible to realize that things went drastically wrong. So when I was working at Canacuck as a college student, one of the summers, one of the things I got to do was lead these river trips, which were really, really fun. You take 25 kids put them in canoes for three days, you camp on the banks for each night, and the first thing you had to do when you were leading these trips is you had to pick up the canoes. And don't ask me why this is the case, but the canoes were stored like 40 minutes away from the riverhead where you launched out onto these trips. So I'm in this pickup truck that's seen its better days with a couple other guys, and we are going to get these canoes, and they're on this giant trailer. I mean, you can stack probably 10 canoes on this trailer. It's huge, heavy, cumbersome. And we get to the place where we're picking up these canoes, and the guy who's driving, I just tell this so you'll, you'll get a good picture here, he's a Texas A&M Aggie, okay? This is all you need to know. <laughs> so we get there, and I get ready to hop out of the truck and say, do you need me to help back you up? No, 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 I've done this a thousand times, I've got it. Okay. So we're sitting there in the truck, and we're backing up to this trailer, and we're getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And I keep thinking he's going to hit the brake, and all of a sudden we hear this big crunch. So nobody wants to say anything. We get out, we go back there, and we look at the trailer, and it looks fine. There's nothing really wrong except for this one tiny little piece on the top of the trailer hitch, which is now broken off and laying on the ground. And so we think, I mean, this can't be that big a deal. We're just going to do what we can and get these canoes to the to the river. So we get it on there, and, and you probably realize at this point the locking mechanism on the trailer is now broken. So we put the ball in the socket, and we start looking around the truck for what we could use to secure the trailer to the truck. So again, we're, this is, we're 21. We've got all the ingenuity in the world here, and uh, it doesn't hurt that we're invincible. 
So we get a bike chain and a roll of duct tape. That's what's in the back of this truck. And we think, this is, I mean, why even have a, a, a lock on your trailer? So we wrap the bike chain around the truck and the trailer, and then we use about half of that roll of duct tape to secure it. We thought, this would be great. So we take off, and if you've been in the Ozarks, you realize that even when you're going 30 miles an hour, you are up and down and all over the place, and we're going, and we're late now because we've been uh, held back by this trailer, so this guy is flying down these Ozark roads. And all of a sudden, we bank this curve, and we hear a giant pop in the back of the truck. And both of us in the back turn around and look, and the trailer is loose, okay? But it's also going about 35 miles an hour at this point. So it's one of those you can't really brake too fast because you're going to get run over by the trailer, but you don't want to get too far from the trailer because you don't know what's going to happen. And this thing is going all over the road. And finally, it slows down, we slow down, and it lands, I kid you not, about a foot away from the back of our trailer. So we're still like 15 minutes from the river. So we go back there, and the guy says, don't we still have half a roll of duct tape? <laughs> so at this point, without seeing any better options, we just wrap that thing back up with the duct tape, go a little slower, get there to the river. We let off the canoes. Me and one of the other guys take off, and I don't know how he got that trailer back to where it was going. But I always think about that story. Our, our ignorance of that situation is astounding in its own right. But the, the other thing going on there is there was such a tiny little piece of that entire operation, thousands of pounds of canoes, a huge truck, miles of road, and the only thing that mattered was this tiny one-inch locking mechanism on that trailer. And once that piece was gone, all mayhem could break loose. And what I want you to think about this morning is that this is the way sin is, right? It's easy to think of sin because of the big catastrophic consequences of sinful people all living together on this planet. But in its essence, what the Bible teaches us is sin is a tiny little decision. It's a tiny little move that you make in your heart where you choose yourself, your dreams, your desires, your passions above God. That's what sin is. And it only takes a tiny little shift for things to go incredibly off the rails. In fact, that's what the entire opening of Genesis is about. How one tiny sin can lead to a world full of cruelty and suffering and sadness and death. What we're doing in these weeks leading up to Advent is we're almost taking like a satellite image of the Bible leading up to Christmas. Because my thought is, if you're going to understand what happened when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, you've got to understand what happened before that. Why does it matter that Jesus was born if you don't know anything that was happening up to it? So last week we talked about creation. And in the creation story, we learn that there are some really unique things about you how you were made, how you were wired, how you're designed to function. You were made in the image of God. The best version of yourself is the one that is honoring and glorifying and mirroring and imaging God as creator and sustainer and builder of the universe. That you are made to worship, that you don't actually have a choice about worshiping, you just have a choice on what and who you worship. 
We do this all day, every day. Our hearts are turned towards the things that demand our worship. We talked about the fact that we are workers, that actually work is not a post-fall phenomenon. It is a pre-fall institution. Adam was given a job in the garden. And Eve, when she was created, joined in that work, and they were doing this before they ever sinned. You have been given a mandate by God to take what's going on in the Garden of Eden, the worship that happens there, the temple, we talked about this last week, the temple that is the Garden of Eden, spread that across the whole earth. The last thing we learned is we were created to be relational. We were created for relationships, one with God and with other people. And that is captured so perfectly in the second chapter of Genesis where Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're walking with God, they are talking with him, they are naked, they are unashamed, they are fully intimate and transparent in all their relationships. And then in chapter 3, things go wrong. And that's where I want to start this morning. So we're going to cover two stories in Scripture this morning, the first one being the fall in in Genesis chapter 3, and the second one being the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. And what I want to show you this morning is these stories are exactly the same. One of them shows an individual who sins, an individual who begins to worship something other than God, and in Genesis 11, we see what happens when a society begins to turn away from God. And this picture that we see in Genesis chapter 11 although it's not the most popular story in the Bible, is the lens through which I want you to see everything that takes place until the time that Jesus is born. Every city after Babel is an imitation of Babel, all the way up through the time that Jesus is born. So you probably are familiar with the fall story, and I'll just start it the way that the author of Genesis does in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field, that the Lord God had made. Everything is going swimmingly in the garden until there's an intruder in the garden, the serpent. And Adam and Eve are going along. They're doing what God has commanded them to do. They're cultivating and keeping the earth. They are not guarding it, as we'll see in a moment. That's the first breach that Adam and Eve commit, is they're not guarding the garden the way that God told them to. And the serpent it begin, takes up a conversation with Eve. And in Genesis 3, verse 3, it says, but The serpent says to Eve, "Um, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. And she gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So just in case anybody's upset here that Eve is the one who was tempted, Eve is the one who is sinning, Adam actually is the one who is silent through all of this. So Adam's standing right next to her. He lets, you know, he lets this dialogue go on. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't step in. And he is complicit when Eve takes the fruit and eats it. She gives it to her husband. He eats it as well. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Well, if we were going to break down kind of the timeline of what goes on, First, the serpent enters the garden and begins to question what God had said about the garden. 
But notice this. He doesn't just question what God had said about the garden. He really goes straight to the heart of what God has said about Adam and Eve as his created regents in the garden. Did God really say you would die? Is that actually how you were made? Did God really say that you needed to obey him alone? Didn't he give you a brain to think for yourself? Didn't he give you a nature and didn't he give you responsibility to utilize on your own? Now Eve is, is not thinking about it this way. Eve has been captured. Her, her imagination and her desires are now captured by the one thing that she has been forbidden to do. And if you have kids or if you've been alive very long, you realize this is a primal human temptation. If you say this is the only thing you cannot do, there's a whole group of us that that's the only thing we want to do. And Eve is one of those people when she said, when the serpent says, oh, you won't really die, you should try it. Her heart, her imagination, her mind begins to turn. Maybe God's withholding something from me. Maybe God isn't all that he says he is. Maybe God isn't as satisfying as I thought he was. Maybe if I do this, God won't mind. Maybe I can do this and I can live life on my own terms. These thoughts have not changed in the history of the world. Every sin begins by going down this path. In sum, if we're going to put a fine point on this, Eve believes that she can rule over her own life in her own way without God. That is the essence of sin. Sometimes we wouldn't put it quite that starkly, but Eve believes that she can be her own God on her own terms and do whatever she wants to do. So what happens when they eat the fruit is that they are jolted off the track that God made for them. If we had enough time, we could go through these stories in Genesis and see that every category of creation is changed, is fractured. In the fall, in the flood, in the Tower of Babel, in the family of Abraham, every single thing about the way God made Adam and Eve has now been changed. They were made to image God, but they decided to do things their own way, not his way. They were made to worship God, but their hearts have actually been captured by something else. They were made to work for God's purposes, but now they are actually doing their own bidding. They were made to be relational, but now they are ashamed. What sin does is it goes right to the core of who you were created to be and begins to twist it. Begins to twist it. Now, if you go forward in the story of Genesis, things unravel really quickly, right? You only, we have one generation where Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, they get into a fight. Cain slays Abel. You have the first murder in the Bible. That does not go well. What God does is he sends uh, Cain even further to the east. And we went over this last week. The geography of Genesis is really important. God creates the land of Eden, and inside of Eden there's this garden, this paradise garden. And what happens is humanity gets further and further and further and further away from this garden. So Adam and Eve are kicked out to the east of the garden. Cain is kicked out to the east of Eden. He's out in the world now. He begins to build a city, and he names it after his own son. And he begins to build his own kingdom. And things get so bad that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. This is what sin is, is people whose hearts are now committed not to God but to something else. Their hearts are continuously planning evil. And I want you to think for a minute, not to dismiss these people as primeval and ignorant and not like us. This is not what they probably thought they were doing. Instead, they thought they were getting ahead. They thought they were building their own empires. They thought they were looking out for number one. 
But what this story tells us is every time you worship something other than God, that is sin. So sin is going all over the earth, and God decides he's going to flood the earth and start over again. So he appoints Noah. Noah builds a giant ark. The the rains come down. Noah and his family are saved. The animals are saved. Noah gets off, and we get this line where we see the generations of Noah. And the question is, are things going to go better for the sons of Noah than they did for the sons of Adam? And you probably already know the answer to this question. No. (laughs) They're going to get worse. So in chapter 10, we get the generations of the sons of Noah. And if you're paying attention to this phrase throughout Scripture, you've already seen this several times where we see the generations of the heavens and the earth in 2 verse 4. We get the generations of Adam. Now we have the generations of Noah. And this means we're going to talk about their kids and what they did. Now Genesis chapter 10 is what I think is probably the most underrated chapter in the first part of the Bible. If you look into a commentary, this is called the Table of Nations. And what the author is doing is they're trying to get us caught up from early times to modern times. And what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we're just going to give you an overview of all the things that happened, all the nations that were created, and they give us this long list of people. And I want to draw your attention to the middle of this list. This is really easy to skip when you're reading through these long lists, but this detail is so important. Look at chapter 10, verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. How unfortunate. (laughs) And he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erech, Akkad, Kalne, and the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. And after Nineveh, he builds all these other cities. And what we're going to do in chapter 11 is go back and look at the founding of that city, Babel. Right? So 10 and 11 are not in sequential order. It's like a zoom in to this king, Nimrod, and the building of Babel. So let's talk about this guy, Nimrod, for a moment. As I said, I don't know, I didn't look up the genealogy of this. I'm not sure how this word got turned into the word we use now as Nimrod, but Nimrod in the early days was a really good term. You wanted to be a Nimrod, and it meant that you were a mighty person. He was the first great king on the earth. In fact, a lot of people think that maybe his life and the epic of Gilgamesh, which is the first epic that we have, it's a Sumerian epic, um, is about this guy. So if you go back and and you look at the archaeological evidence, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a Sumerian epic. It exists on these tablets. And what Gilgamesh does is he is the first great king of the universe, and he is trying to kill the person who caused the flood. So he goes and talks to this guy named Utnapishtim. And that would also be a hard name to get through kindergarten with. But he goes to this guy, and, and this guy is uh, uh, somebody who survived the flood. And he asks him his advice. And ba- basically, this guy tells him, no plan of the person who caused the flood can ever be thwarted. But that doesn't deter Gilgamesh. Instead, he goes on, and he builds his empire, and he begins to make a case. He begins to build an army to kill the flood sender. Now, like I said, I'm not sure that these are the same, but they both, uh, Gilgamesh comes out of the city of Ur in about 2000 BC. And as we're going to see at the end of this story, there's actually someone else very significant that comes out of Ur in 2000 BC. His name is Abram, later Abraham. 
So Nimrod is the first great king on the earth, and he is a warrior. He is a man, it says, before the Lord. This phrase can also mean a man against the Lord. He has set himself up against God and against his plans. One of the first century historians named Josephus said, Nimrod would get revenge on God. If God would have a mind to drown the world again for that, he would build a tower so high that water could never reach the top. He would avenge himself on God for destroying his forefathers and protect humanity against another flood. What Nimrod represents is every person who believes that their own might can change the course of history against God's leading, against God's plan, against God's power. So he begins to build this tower. And the way that they build this is really interesting. There's a huge technological breakthrough in history right at the time that this story is set. You notice in the beginning it says that they were building with bricks and bitumen for mortar. And bitumen is like a really solid kind of a concrete mortar. And once you had bitumen, you could actually build multi-story buildings. We still have some of these being built in our very city in the exact same way. So they begin building these temples. And we know these now as ziggurats. They are temples to certain gods or certain people. They're building them up so that everyone can see them and worship there. And I'll give you one guess as to who is going to be worshipped at this temple. Nimrod. This is his city. It's his temple. He is building a name for himself. Whereas God said, let us create man in our own image, Nimrod said, let me create a city in my image. Whereas the serpent said, if you eat this, you will be like God, this society said, let's build a tower to the heavens so we will be like God's. So the author of Genesis, Moses, has a little bit of humor, and you can see it in this story. So they're building this giant tower. They are making a name for themselves. They are exerting the full technological power that they have. And uh, their goal is to build a tower so high that they can be up in the heavens like the gods. And then catch this line in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city. This tower is so spectacularly small compared to God that he can't even see it from heaven. He's actually got to come down and get a good look at it, right? So this is obviously being a little bit facetious, but God has to come down to see this tower. It is so small in comparison to him. And what he says is basically, oh, no. These people, they've got one language. They've got technology. They are coming together, and if they do, there is nothing they won't be capable of. Now, some people have read this story like, why is God so threatened by human beings? Why is it that God is so worried about what these people are going to do? And I want, I want to challenge you. I think this reading is a little bit different. What God is doing is protecting them from sinning in even greater ways than they had planned. See, this is something that's true about sin now just as much as it was then. Even if you're not following God, even if you're not worshiping Him, even if you are sinning as much as you possibly can, God's kindness, it says in Romans... God keeping us from doing certain things we could do, certain situations we're falling into, is his way of bringing us back to repentance. What God is doing with these people is saying, there are things, there are sins that they could commit, there are things they could do that would be so egregious, that even though they're rebelling against me, I'm going to step into this situation and keep them from doing anything worse. And if you look back in your own life, I think it doesn't take very long to realize that 
But even before I was a Christian, God was protecting me from certain things that I would have done if given the opportunity. God was making a way for me to come back to him in repentance in the same way that he's going to bring this nation back to repentance later. So God protects them by saying, we're going to foil this plan. So the Lord disperses them across the face of the earth. One of the commentators says that God knew, and what the city builders didn't know, was the devastation that their technology and sin would wreak if human pride were allowed to progress unimpeded. So God scatters them across the face of the earth, which, if you remember, was his mission in the beginning. Right? What did he tell Adam and Eve to do? I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with the glory of God. What did these people do? They all huddled, huddled together in the plain of Shinar. They built this temple to themselves. They worshiped themselves. They, they appointed a king to rule over them, and God continued his work. God scatters these people across the world. He confuses their language so that they'll go and create communities so that they would fulfill the mission that God has given them. One of the, stories that, one of the things that this story teaches us about God is that he is the Lord of history, whether we believe it or not. And he is actually going to accomplish his plan, whether you are working for him or not. In the end, we already have the last part of the Bible. We know how things are going to end. God is going to bring the new city, the new Babel, the new Eden, the new Jerusalem down, and every nation of the earth is going to be represented worshiping him. He is the Lord of history. And from the heart of Nimrod's Babylonian empire, God raises up a very significant person, Abraham, who's going to be the father of many nations. And if you remember in Genesis chapter 12, what God says, he says, I am going to make you a great name. I am going to make you a great name. And all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Despite Nimrod's greatest plans, God had someone else picked out through whom he was going to bless the world. Out of a sinful world, God is going to bring his plan about in your life, too. He's going to continue the work that he started in you. He's going to continue to redeem you back to the creation picture in which he created the entire universe. He's going to take whatever you've done, and he's going to start untwisting what sin has done in your life. He's going to make you into an image bearer. He's going to make you into a worshiper. He's going to make you into a worker. He's going to heal your relationships because that is God's plan for the universe. And the decision we have is the same decision that Eve had. It's the same decision that Nimrod had. It's the same decision that everybody from this page to the end of the Bible has. Will you worship him or will you worship something else? We tend to think of sin as bad choices, right? You do something that is forbidden, that is sin. But sin always starts before the bad choice. Sin starts when your heart is captured by something other than God. Right? That's why the solution to sin is not just starting to do the right thing. The solution to sin is to love God and to love his son, Jesus Christ, and side with him, ally yourself with him, know that he did something you could never do, which is pay for your sins and bring you back into relationship with God. So Babel, or Babylon, which is how we should probably translate this word, becomes the city in opposition to God for the rest of the Bible. In fact, there is one city from now on that is going to stand in opposition to everything that God wants to do, whether that is against the nation of Israel, whether that's in the book of Revelation. The city of Babylon represents every person and every entity who raises themselves up against God. 
but God will have no rivals. This is why sin is so serious. Sin is rivalry to God. It's setting up another God. And we think about idols, and we think how silly and, and, and primordial for these people to set up little pieces of wood and stone, but if you put them in different shapes and make them into cars or houses or buildings or careers or uh, bank accounts, they're still idols. And God will have no rival idols. And in fact, St. Augustine, when the Roman Empire is crumbling, writes this book called The City of God. And in the book, he pits these two cities. There's a city of God and there's a city of man. And for all of history, these cities have been moving and competing against each other. And the city of God is always looking like it has the underhand until you know at the end of time, the true king is coming to the city of God. And Paul, drawing on the stories that we've covered this morning, puts it this way in the book of Philippians, that Jesus is the true king of the city of God. He is the one who is the heir of everything that God has made. He is the perfect human being. He is perfectly aligned, perfectly designed, perfectly imaging God. And in Philippians chapter 2 it says, but he didn't exalt himself, he humbled himself. He didn't reach out and take what was forbidden. He surrendered his will to God. He didn't make a name for himself, but he glorified his father, he was mocked, he was crucified, he died, he rose from the dead, he was exalted, and at his name, Paul says, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, and his father will get the glory. This is why the New Testament commands us that above everything else, you are to love God with everything you have. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. The antidote is to love him, to worship him, to work for him, to bear his image, to spread what he is doing across the face of the earth. So this is the way that history goes from the time of Eve, from the time of Babel, all the way up to the midpoint in the timeline when the king appears on the earth. And in two weeks, that's what we're going to talk about. This morning, I want to leave you with the point of Babel, which is every person is tempted to do things their own way. Every person is tempted to make a name for themselves. Every person is tempted to use what you have to build your own empire. And the choice then and the choice now is whose empire will you build? Whose image will you mirror? Who will you worship? Let me pray. Father, thank you that no matter how many things that we've done, you offer redemption to us. Father, thank you for these stories that sometimes are easy to skip over as so distant and so far from us, but, Father, our hearts are the same as theirs. So, Father, we ask you now to soften our hearts. Father, we ask you to turn our hearts. Father, we ask you to remind us of the joy that comes in worshiping you. Father, help us to see that um, you've given us a role to play. You've given us something so satisfying to work, to use our skills and our gifts and our talents to build your kingdom on the earth. So, Father, would you do that in us this morning? As we worship and as we go, Father, would you give us eyes to see the world the way you see it? Or would you give us hearts that respond in ways that you've created us to respond to people who are hurting, to people that wrong us, to people that are our enemies? And Father, most of all, would you turn our hearts to see Christ, the King of the universe, who's worthy of our trust, he's worthy of our vulnerability, he's worthy of our worship, he's worthy of our love. It's in his name we pray, amen.